This is Porter Block. I'm a New York-based musician, and I also am a huge music fan. This podcast explores music from every angle, and I'll be talking to people who've made the business of music the focus of their life. Welcome to In a State. Bob Gruen's career has spanned over six decades. He's documented the music scene. His photographs of rock stars and musicians helped define what taking pictures of rock stars are all about. His work is iconic. He's most well known for his friendship and being John Lennon's personal photographer during his period in New York City. But his work and his relationships with bands like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The New York Dolls, the Ramones, Led Zeppelin, Ike and Tina Turner, and countless others have been compiled in books that he's published and books about rock and roll photography. I got a chance to hang out with Bob in his studio in the West Village, the same place he's been since 1970. Before you and before, I guess, rock scene, there was no rock press, there was no rock photography to speak of. Now they teach classes on it in college. Well, it's true. When I started rock photography, it was not a word. It, it was not a job description. There was a photographer working in the music business who did kind of news stories for Billboard magazine. His name was Popsy. He had started as, uh, I think, a driver or roadie for Benny Goodman. He had a camera, so he would take pictures for other musicians. Um, but in fact, in 1970 or so, 1970, when I started coming in, there wasn't really anybody else doing it. Uh, pretty soon, there was another guy named Chuck Pullen. And he and I were sort of the first. Chuck introduced me to uh, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin's manager, by saying that he took the news pictures and I took the art pictures. And I really appreciated that because he had learned that even though we were next to each other many times, we took different kinds of pictures. And so we were never really in competition. But yeah, there was no role models. There was nobody to you know look up to because rock photography was not a specialized field. There was not a lot of publications uh, dedicated to rock music. There was Folkways and Sing Out, which were small, kind of stapled, uh, just a, sh- a, sh- a hair above a fanzine that was devoted to folk music. But there was no magazines devoted to rock and roll music until Rolling Stone was probably one of the first right. actually interested in rock and roll music. And then there were local magazines like Crawdaddy was an early one. Uh, those kind of magazines that were more localized but writing about rock and roll. But they had, their circulation was in the thousands at most, you know, under 10,000, like four-figure circulation, 2,000, 3,000. Uh, Rolling Stone was did the first one. Did they just buy out the pictures from you or did you... Oh, buy photos yeah. for me? No, they, they, <laughs> did you trade that's, it? That's one of the reasons. That's a good point. Uh, one of the reasons there was no uh, description of rock photography is because no one had paid for that. It was kind of a labor of love. You know, I, I started uh, because my friends formed a band. Before that, I was my best friend in, in high school. We used to play some folk music together, and I can strum a few folk chords. But when they started a band influenced by the Beatles, they started playing notes. And that got a little too complicated on the guitar for me, but I was already good with a camera. Uh, having learned photography from my mother when I was five years old, becoming the family photographer, taking pictures in high school. And so it's kind of natural that when my friends started a band, I started taking pictures of them. Then 
One thing led to another. Uh, after several drummer changes, they actually got a record contract. The record company used my photos, and that was... Um, what was the band's name? In the end, they were called the Glitter House. Glitter House. One word. Uh, it has nothing to do with glitter. It came from a movie, The Amazing Dr. Glitter House. Uh, we just liked the name Glitter House. About two or three years later, glitter became a thing. <laughs> But before that, uh, they were actually called uh, Psychedelic Pop or Psychedelic Rock. The one and, band uh, you've been associated with that hasn't made it huge. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of bands I've been associated with. No, no, but that's a good point, too. Because people you know, associate me with some huge bands like you know uh, Led Zeppelin or Clash or John and Yoko. I have 25 filing cabinets downstairs full, full, full of groups you have never heard of and nobody ever will hear of. The point is I took pictures of everybody, not a couple of famous people. Luckily, a couple of them became famous. <laughs> get this first time press pass and you show up second time to Newport and get that picture of of Dylan playing electric and I don't know I'm sure there were other people covering it that night but it seems like that picture is the one that I certainly remember it's kind of interesting about that I think one of, part of my career is not just taking pictures but that I get them out from my earliest days it was important me to get the pictures to a publication so that was to, published immediately no actually I took it in 65 I don't think it was I didn't even know anybody to send it out at that point um, it probably wasn't published until the early 70s um, but after that once I had that picture of Dylan and it's only one slide that survived from that night really there's a couple of blurry ones but that one is the least blurry but then for almost 40 years it was the only picture I ever saw uh, I've never seen another picture in another magazine I know that David Garr was there he's a great photographer Jim Marshall legendary photographer Jim Marshall was there that night he has pictures from that night I've never seen either one of them until I think it was a David Garr photo about two years ago or so the Sotheby's uh, auction house auctioned the guitar that Bob Dylan was playing that night and in the auction catalog they used a couple of my pictures in that catalog it was the first time I ever saw another picture of him playing the guitar that night in a state let's go back to seven you know 70 71 I guess you had just moved into this place right yeah 1970 um uh, and you were hanging out with Elephant's Memory, and that is the John and Yoko connection? The way I first met them, I was included. I had done other work with, um, at that point, Elton John, Alice Cooper, Ike and Tina Turner was my main act that I worked with for several years. Uh, my first album cover was an Ike and Tina album. But then by by 72, early 72, I was included in a book called The uh, Photography of Rock. And the person, the writer, Henry Edwards, was doing the biographies for the writers, of the for the photographers in the book. And out of the dozen photographers in the book, he, for some reason, liked me and he liked my photos. And he told me that he was writing a story about the Elephant's Memory Band, which was um, a New York City band that had a very political uh, leaning, and they would play at all the rallies and demonstrations. And he was writing a story about them, and at that point, they were backing up John and Yoko, working on the Sometime in New York City, a very political album. He was going to interview John and Yoko about the Elephant's Memory. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I wasn't really meeting them as John and Yoko. I was meeting them as the people who knew the Elephant's Memory Band. So it was really the Elephant's Memory that led me to John and Yoko, and in an interesting way, later led me to the New York Dolls. 
Because after I started working with John and Yoko and the Elephant's Memory, John started producing an Elephant's Memory album, and I took a whole bunch of pictures of them. And then when I went to meet their managers, they were the managers for Elephants were Lieber and Krebs, and somebody in the office said, oh, you should see this other band that we managed, the New York Dolls. And in fact, as I got more, taking pictures of them, I got closer to the Lieber and Krebs people. Uh, they also hired me to go and photograph a bar band up in Boston called Aerosmith. In all the time that you spent with John, was he ever... Um aware or paranoid about the FBI, what we know now, obviously, that the FBI were listening. Yes, um, as it developed, um, they started hearing clicks on the phone and thinking somebody might be tapping the phone, and it seemed like there might be people watching them, and Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and a couple of the other rebel rousers were planning uh, demonstrations in Florida at the Republican convention, and they were trying to talk to John about coming and playing a concert for peace. He didn't really want to get involved in politics, and at the time, he was recording an album and was not planning to participate in that but the government thought he was and so they started the order of deportation and tried to throw john out of the country and that kind of morphed into the one-to-one concert for, which got terrible for- reviews there was a tour for peace then the first one was to do this concert for the benefit of the willowbrook uh, hospital for children yoko had some songs in that concert in the elephant's memory were a rollicking 50 style r&b you know bar band and uh, we were all drinking for several months leading up to that it wasn't even a couple of nights i mean we were we were drinking heavily and by the time the concert came up in august we hadn't stopped we thought it was amazing fun we were having rock and roll fun the band was rocking yoko's songs were great the critics were expecting a beetle not a political guy with a new york rock band you know Uh, They trashed the concert terribly. They hated Yoko. They hated the new songs. They hated the politics. Didn't even like the Elephant's Memory. If you watch the video of John and Yoko at Masters for Garden and the Elephant's Memory Band, there's a point, I think it's towards the last song, uh, John calls for an Elvis song. And usually when they warmed up, uh, rehearsing for a month leading up to the concert, every night they rehearsed, they would play a couple of Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley songs, because they all knew all of them, and they just played a couple of them to warm up. So at the Masters for Garden, at the climax of the show, at the second encore John calls for I think Hound Dog or you know an Elvis song which was one that they happen to have never played <laughs> you know of all the ones that they had actually oh, played over and over he and called out a song nobody had ever played but they fell right into it because they all knew the song they were all great musicians so they're playing the song Stan Bronstein a brilliant saxophone player he played a bit of a solo between the first part when John you know motioned him to do a second solo he starts playing puts his saxophone down and runs off stage and grabs his wife and starts dancing with her and that was his solo was his dance with his wife that's how loose the show was there might have been a we liked it a lot it was absolute fun but there might be a reason that the critics didn't really get it (laughs) on a musical level Meeting Ike and Tina Turner was a big t- turning point for me because they were huge stars and they were very human and normal and very warm to me and very open to me. Uh, Ike was amazingly generous, very smart, uh, extremely technically savvy. He would travel around the world whenever he would meet some kid who could tell him that he could build a certain box that did a certain effect in a studio. He would keep that kid high and take him back to Los Angeles until he could build whatever he was describing. In Ike's studio in LA, there was always some guy 
guy under the control panel putting the newest, latest device into his panel. Yeah, I really, I mean, you know, he was an old bluesman from Chicago, but it was nothing slow or dumb about him. He was quite brilliant, and I never saw any violent side of him. There was a strong side to him. You knew Ike was absolutely in control. You definitely knew you didn't want to cross Ike in any way possible, but like I say, he was very generous to many people if you needed a car, if you needed a house, if you needed protection from your boyfriend, whatever people needed, he provided. Uh, I went to his funeral and there was over a thousand people there because all those people were people he helped and little Richard got on the stage and praised him for the help that he gave to him in his early career. Not to not to excuse what he did to Tina, which I heard about later, I never saw that, but hearing that story was actually horrifying. On the other hand, I made a film in the early days in 71 and 72 of I Can Tina Turner on the Road. I had a videotape machine and I taped a lot of different things of them traveling and them at home and them in a recording studio. Tina cooking liver at home, Ike recording with the guys. And and, and it actually opens up with a, a scene in a car where Tina is totally teasing Ike and, and he's like, you know, a henpecked husband going, oh, honey, but, oh, but, honey. So what I'd like to say is that if love was, if what's love got to do with the show's why I continue to broke up. My film shows why they were together in the first place. The, of course, the famous multiple exposed picture of Tina. Um it's a multiple exposure in the sense that it's one exposure with a strobe light flashing. It's actually not created, it's not Photoshop, it's not five pictures put together. At the end of Tina's act, she would dance off stage with a strobe light flashing. And I just got the idea that if I opened the camera to one second and caught a couple of those flashes, maybe it would look good. Uh, I had about four or five frames left on the film. Three or four of them are useless. One of them was just perfect. It's like my Duchamp nude descending the staircase. Uh, it just captures the essence of Tina in five images that are in one photo on one negative because one picture of Tina doesn't capture the energy. I mean, it's interesting. You have to go look the picture up, but uh, it does show five images of Tina in motion and people often back then would ask me if I would take a picture of them looking like that and I said, well, I'll do what I did and you do what Tina did. <laughs> you know? And obviously we have never come close to um, reproducing that. The other one was the the Sex Pistols with the milkshakes and or the in the straws. Yeah, not milkshakes. It's liquor. Go to England. You have one number, mm. and it's Malcolm McLaren. Right. And um, suddenly you're sort of thrown into. Uh, the Clash and the Sex Pistols. He taken. took me to a place called Club Louise, and I met the Clash, the Sex Pistols, uh, Susie and the Banshees, Adam, uh, uh, Marco Peroni. I think Billy Idol was there. What did John um, think of all the the punk bands? Who, in a sense, were I didn't really uh, talk to him too much about that in the seventies when punk was happening uh, because he was home raising Sean and he wasn't coming out. There were times I would call him and say, "Well, the Clash are in town." He goes, "I'm taking care of the baby." There was a time when the Basie Rollers actually. He came to town and wanted to meet John and he said tell him if there's still a band of five years I'll meet him then and I said well do you have any advice he said well tell them to get all the money they can now in their own name uh, which was good advice because they never did get their money you know when the Clash were here or the whole CBGB scene or even earlier than that in 74 when the New York Dolls were playing I would tell him but he was busy he never came down in 1980 I remember talking to him about the Mud Club and uh, the CBGB scene and he said I was in Hamburg I don't need to go there and do it again to him the CBGB scene was very similar and, and if you look at some of the pictures of the Beatles in Hamburg they look like punks the leather jackets and the rocker hairdo they were the original punks right and John knew that and he knew that he didn't have to repeat it the Sex Pistols that mm. was just something that came about because you were 
they were all sitting on one side of a table and you're like, all right, I guys. don't really organize a lot of sessions. I find it awkward to tell people what to do. So like if people come to a studio and you re- try to recreate a moment where they look like a band, I would rather walk into the dressing room 30 seconds before they go on stage when the audience is already going, you know, we want a band, we want a band. And they, you got like five seconds and they're pumped and they're ready and they're a band. And that's the picture I want. The Sex Pistols, one of them describes them as almost like the Marx Brothers, you know, an anarchistic version of the Marx Brothers, that um, they were comedians, they were funny, and they were, uh, there's a couple of bands, a few bands that would know each other so well and work together so well, that one guy can pick up a straw, the other guy see it and immediately fall into some kind of a, you know, reaction that fits that mood. And I took a picture of Green Day one day, and I was showing them my new book, uh, John Lennon book, and they said, well, hold, let's hold the book up and take a picture of it. So Billy grabbed the book, and instead of just holding it up, he turned it sideways and opened it as if they were looking at a centerfold. And Mike and Trey immediately, you know, made an expression as if they were looking at a naked woman. You know, like, whoa, look at that, centerfold. So they made it a cartoon kind of comic picture without any instruction whatsoever. I just said, oh my God, you're all in the same place at the same time. Let me get a picture. Some bands like the Pistols or uh, notoriously Led Zeppelin or the Allman Brothers didn't pose. They weren't posers. They didn't pose for a picture. So on that moment when you would find all four of them standing next to each other, you go, hey guys, look at me. And quick, you get a picture that's a group shot. Well, Zeppelin in front of the plane was, again, very spontaneous. You know, nowadays you'd have to email and fax managers and lawyers for two months to set up something like that. In my case, we went with the band out to the airport. We're getting out of the limos to get on the plane. And I don't know if it was Robert or uh, Lisa Robinson who said, let's get a picture with the plane. And they were all okay. And they walked over to the wing and I took half a dozen, maybe eight shots. And that was it. It was a picture of them with their plane. It was no big deal. Uh, you know, what I like about that picture, if you look at it, Robert's kind of leaning next to the engine, and the plane is so big, it doesn't fit in the picture. You only see part of the plane, but you see their name on it, uh, and people think it's their plane. Now, the fact is, by the way, you rent that plane. It was their plane for a month. It was their plane, but only for a month. Uh, the Rolling Stones had it. Uh, Alice Cooper had it. I was on the plane with, El- with Elton John and Stevie Wonder. Uh, it was a very nice plane, but it wasn't. you don't buy a plane like that. How about the Basie Rollins? Yeah, the, uh, yeah, iconic. That was one. The other is the levitated Elton. Was that at the Troubadour? or No, that's at uh, uh, Fillmore, actually, in New York at the Fillmore East, where he's playing the piano and he just went vertical. I mean, horizontal, where, you know, some people will kick back the stool and lean into the piano. He was literally horizontal in the air. The Clash, there's a what I call the Clash full frontal, mm. but that one shot, that four shot of them. Oh, that was in Boston, yeah. Um, and and uh, I traveled with them on two tours across America. I photographed them a few times in England as well. That was the one night when yeah, Everything came together with the right light in the right place at the right moment, and luckily I did the right thing. Kissing Suits. Was that the album cover as well? We actually took the picture for a Cream Magazine comic book. It's something called a photo novella, which is a comic book made out of photographs. It was part of a story where Kiss is in their um, secret identity uh, clothes, you know, with the faces. You'd never recognize them as Kiss. Basically, they were going to work in the morning. They read in the newspaper that there was going to be a John Cleveland concert, which was John Denver cleverly disguised. And they decided that the world was going too bland and was going, you know, down the wrong path and that they put up 
enough signs for a fake John Cleveland concert and when the people come to the concert Kiss appears on the stage and they save the world with rock and roll but that picture was just part of the introduction of the story where they were reading the paper and then we came out of the subway and in the comic it's a moment where they kind of discuss their plot to have this fake concert but it was just something I thought up like hey guys stand over by this lamppost let's get a picture of you wearing suits when they saw the story the photo story in Cream Magazine they liked that picture so much that's when they decided to make it an album cover it's kind of like we took the picture in November, I think, and around February, March or something, and decided to make it the album cover. And they were recording in Electric Ladyland, so I had to go back to Electric Lady with the suits. Gene uh, and Paul are wearing my suits. Uh, no, not Paul. Gene and Ace are wearing my suits. Uh, Paul and Peter actually had their own, but Ace and Gene are wearing my suits, which is why Gene looks like a monster, because the suit is three sizes too small on him. Well, it does. It makes him much serious, because he's breaking out of the suit like the Hulk. Uh, and he's wearing my wife's clogs, which make it, his feet look like hooves. So, anyway, I had to take the clothes back to Electric Ladyland, to take some pictures of them recording the album wearing the suits as if that was their outfits that's what their uniform is as if they wore that all the time uh, so we recreated that I'm one of the few people who's taking pictures of Kiss not in their Kiss costume um, you know it's like Superman in a different clothes you know what I mean picture of uh, baby Sean in bed with, with John and Yoko that's another kind of big one I think it's um, popular yeah because Johnny Yoko called me a month after Sean was born to come and take pictures basically for their family uh, and we didn't use those pictures for a long time I hadn't really worked with them they hadn't worked uh, I'd seen them socially drop by you know have some tea or whatever uh, while John was home raising Sean but then in the summer 1980 Yoko called me that they were back in the studio and they're making an album and she wanted me to come by and then in the fall I kind of dropped in and uh, irregular you know whenever I had I felt like staying up late at night I'd go by and see how the album was coming and mixing and so on and I'd taken some pictures of them then around December the Village Voice had called me they were going to run an article and wanted to see some pictures and I went to the studio to ask them to show them the pictures I had and ask them which ones they wanted me to bring down to the Village Voice I always worked with them and showed them what I had and what I was doing I went to show that to them and Yoko said well why don't you take some new pictures because there's going to be a lot more you know things coming up so take a, a new series and so that night Thursday night I took a, a few pictures late at night of them around the studio but John had just gotten this brand new jacket and he said I don't have my jacket come back tomorrow I'm bringing my new jacket tomorrow so I went back on Friday night and there was some glitch in the recording process I remember we sat on the floor and talked for about at least a couple of hours, two, three hours or something, just sitting on the floor talking. And, and John was like very happy about the, the fact that the album was being um, reviewed p positively for once. Uh, you know, he kind of dropped out five years earlier when the reviewers didn't like his albums. But now he's getting great reviews. And it was the first time that Yoko was getting good reviews. And John was absolutely thrilled that people were starting to understand Yoko the way he did. I remember him saying that his songs were being reviewed, um, like that Yoko's songs were being reviewed as the more interesting His songs were being released as um, M.O.R., meaning middle of the road. And I remember him saying, that's okay, I'm going down the middle of the road to the bank. <laughs> you know? And that's where he wanted to go. Uh, but he was absolutely thrilled that Yoko was being recognized, and uh, he was planning a world tour. We were sitting there talking about where we were going to go shopping in Tokyo and what we were going to eat in Paris. And I went home that night thinking, I'm going to meet leaders of the world. You know, I'm going to go around the world with John Yoko. It was the most incredible moment, you know, that I could imagine my life having led to. Anyway, we were up all night in the studio there, and we 
we were leaving like 7 or 8 in the morning and uh, John had the new jacket he, it's a beautiful Yamamoto jacket very expensive uh, with Japanese uh, poetry down the sleeves embroidery and stuff and so anyway he said he wanted to take some pictures and yeah I remember Yoko saying she was tired and wanted to go home like later and John said no he stayed up all night meaning he brought the jacket you know <laughs> let's take some pictures so uh, so on the sidewalk in front of the re- uh, record plant where I had actually taken pictures of them the first time I met them I mean the first photo session I did with them we took a series of pictures of them just standing there and then they got in the car and left and two days later I was in my dark room Monday night developing those pictures when I got the call that John had been shot and then I got a call that he had he was dead this is about the worst phone call I ever got want to talk about um, the book, the um, Roxine book? So my major tome, my monograph is Roxine and spelled S-E-E-N, like the things that I've seen. Uh, it has over 500 of my favorite photos. People are always asking me which are my favorite photo, but I don't make lists really, you know, because I have a lot of pictures I like, so I couldn't say number one, number two. Uh, I once actually had to make a list of my top 10 albums and it went to 25 because I had one A, one B, one C, <laughs> you know, things like that. Uh, so Roxine anyway has uh, my favorite 500 photos. It's quite a collection of my career f- and covers from I can Tina Turner and Elvis Presley even, uh, right up to Green Day. As Bob Gruen put it, it was a moment. And he's been there to capture so many great ones. Do yourself a favor. Go to BobGruen.com and see some of the incredible pictures that this man has taken over the last 60 years. I want to thank Bob for letting us into his studio and coming down to In a State, letting us podcast this. And I want to thank you for listening. This is Porter Block from New York City. You can listen to my stuff on Spotify or iTunes or go to www.teammensch.com. Once again, if you truly love music, you're in a state. I'm in-